Two senators want the Justice Department to act more aggressively on using suspension and debarment of federal contractors who break the law. The letter from Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ben Ray Lujan to the Attorney General asks DOJ to move out of its traditional role and take a government-wide approach to suspension and debarment. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the letter has sparked such a strong reaction from the contractors. Jason joins me now with the latest. Jason, let's start with that letter. What are they specifically asking for? What do they want from justice about suspension and debarment, which has been an individual agency issue for the most part? It absolutely is, Tom, and it's not considered even a punishment. It's a way to protect the government from potential problems, not as a way to punish contractors or individuals within a vendor or company. But what the senators are asking for is basically saying, hey, Justice Department, why have you been unable or unwilling to use your authority to suspend and debark what they call corporate criminals over in the government contracting process? They said the government spends $600 billion a year on on government contracting, and it feels like you're not doing enough to really hold these contractors accountable when they do bad things. And they, they came up with a bunch of suggestions for specifically about what the Justice Department could do. Among them are use your debarment authority for corporate entities, not just individuals. Historically, justice is focused almost only on individuals and not firms. That's one. Use your debarment authority government-wide, meaning not make this an agency decision, but take a more aggressive tone from a Justice Department perspective. And then three, they talked about considered debarment for all corporate misconduct, not just defined by something in the contracting process, but maybe tax evasion, bribery, harmful contact around health, safety, environmental misconduct. And then four, use your suspension authority, again, more broadly, more powerful. If there's what they call adequate evidence to suspend a contractor, use it. Don't be so uh, unwilling to do it. And, and interestingly enough, this has gotten a lot of attention across the, the federal contracting community. And, and it's a little both surprising, but not unexpected because I think contractors generally fear suspension and debarment. Right. Suspension and debarment have been used sparingly, you might say, by federal agencies and only for, in general, actions related to the execution of that contract, not whatever else a public corporation might do somewhere else. I'm not even sure there's statutory authority for that. So not surprisingly, you're getting some strong reaction from contractors. Absolutely. And a lot of the government contracting experts that I've talked to, a lot of the lawyers say, it's almost like the senators, Warren and Lujan, didn't understand the regulations behind suspension and debarment. They may not have even read the regulations that are in the federal acquisition regulations that govern suspension and debarment. I spoke to John Cicciarelli, who's a CEO of Cicciarelli Procurement Strategies, a longtime procurement attorney as well. He was very candid. He, he said, listen, what they're emphasizing is from a politician's perspective, they're not paying attention to what is really happening day to day in the regulations. And in fact, if the Justice Department took over this government-wide perspective, this government-wide, they could actually put them in a really weird position because they'd be making decisions to suspend or debar a contractor, not understanding the agency's mission. So a lot of times agencies say, we're not going to suspend or debar you because of the downward effect it would have on our mission. But what they're asking the Justice Department to do is, is take that aggressive stance without understanding necessarily the mission of the agency. I also talked to Rob Burton, former deputy administrator at Office of Federal Procurement Policy, now a lawyer with Crowell Mooring. And he also said, listen, this idea is is outside of what the Justice Department normally does. They have a role internally to, to worry about contractors with the Justice Department, but right. not necessarily for agencies. And they're, they're focused on being criminal investigators. And there's not always criminal conduct 
that is related to suspension and debarment. So, so again, a couple of folks said this just doesn't make sense. It's not connecting the dots well. And what suggestions do any of these people have? Is there a way, does it need improvement, the whole suspension and debarment process? Most said the suspension and debarment work, works really well already. Now, I talked to Barbara Kanowski, who's a lawyer with Center Law and Consulting, and she says one of the suggestions she would make is it seems like the Justice Department spends too much time focusing on small businesses and not enough time on the larger businesses because larger businesses have lobbyists and lawyers and can really extend out the case, while small businesses are more of the, I'll just pay a fine and get out of it because I don't have the same resources. So she said it would be nice if the folks at the Justice Department actually, if they're going to go forward or any agency going to go forward with suspension environment, really look at the, the bigger picture, not just the small businesses because they are, quote unquote, easier. Rob Burton, again, Crown Mooring, former def- deputy OFPP administrator, said there are things that the, the, the suspension department works really well among them is the use of show cause notices. We've seen that over the last few years is before I suspend or debar you, I'm going to ask you to tell me why I shouldn't. And he says that has really gotten agencies and vendors to act better and to really figure out what's going on and fix the problems. Yeah, those along with cure letters, too, in the same genre. Exactly. Cure this or we're going to have a bigger problem. And I think I think that's part of it. I think one thing that Rob Burton did say was he'd like to see the government be a little more open on what they have behind the scenes. Hey, if this is a criminal indictment or a criminal issue going on or investigation, you have to open the kimono just a little bit. Maybe not the full way because that could impede an investigation, but you got to tell me a little bit more because that also could give the agencies more information to stop working with a contractor or to understand what's happening behind the scenes. He goes, Justice Department, unfortunately, is not as open as they could be. So I think that's another way that they could improve the use of suspension and debarment by the Justice Department being a little more open with agencies. And with respect to suspension and debarment, it gets debated the same way that federal contract and award protests also get discussed and they're counted every year. We know how many protest actions there are out of the 100 or 100,000 or 100 million contracting actions that happen. How often does suspension and debarment actually occur? It happens more time than we think, and but it doesn't happen to big-name companies that we follow, right? If you look at the letter from Warren and Lujan, they highlight a, a few big ones, like like the idea that the agency decided not to suspend or debar Schneider Electric for an alleged kickback overcharge scheme from 2020, right? A couple medical companies, Balfour Betty is an example of, of another one that had some alleged defrauding of government of, of maintenance logs, and then at... Avenos Medical, again, around uh, mislabeled surgical gowns. Again, decisions not to do that. We hear about those, but we don't necessarily hear about all the ones that happen. And there are quite a few that happen, Tom. The 2020 report from the Interagency Suspension and Debarment Committee said about 1,256 companies or executives were debarred and about 415 were suspended. Now, this is way down from a 12-year high in 2014 where 1,900 vendors or executives were debarred and over 1,000 were suspended. And the question is why are these numbers dropping? Are contractors better? Are they fixing the issues more quickly? Is the show cause notices helping out or really kind of stopping it in the tracks? Or are, like the senators claim, the agency's not being aggressive enough? Are they letting things slide too often? So I think there's a lot of questions about what's happening. And, and I think one, one of the things that the Suspension and Debarment Interagency Committee put out there was addressing misconceptions around suspension and debarment. And we have a link to that and their latest report from 2020 on federalnewsnetwork.com so folks can check it out. But the biggest one is suspension and debarment is not a punishment. Is, is, and, and if you suspend a contractor, is, a, is as good as debarring one. And they're saying, listen, 
we want to protect the government. That's what this tool is for. And, and both Rob Burton and, and others I talked to said the same thing. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And it's all in his reporter's notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. 
whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.